Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Once again, we are hijacking today's episode of Health Careless with a rebroadcast of one of my favorite and most relevant episodes dating way back to the before times of April 2020. The earth was a shit show, and yet we recorded an episode that is as relevant today as it was maybe 20 years ago, all about paying your patients to participate. Joining me are Sandy Vassos and Jennifer Harnjeff to talk about the fact that your patient experience matters, and it's worth money to industry, and yet all they want is to talk to you and not pay you for the valuable insights you never asked to have. So here's another lesson in the value of your story and asking and demanding to be paid for that experience. Enjoy the show. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, Pay Your Patience, an Ode to Industry, we're going to talk about the fact that people like to take advantage of our stories because we went through all sorts of shit we didn't ask for, and yet our stories are valuable to companies that monetize them, and yet they don't compensate us for telling them our stories. Not okay in any way. I'm joined by a whole bunch of experts for a great roundtable conversation about this very topic, starting with Andrew McDowell. Chief Operating Officer and Senior Producer here at Offscript Media. Jen Harangeff, also a Senior Producer here at Offscript Media and the Founder and CEO of Savvy Co-op. And Sandy Vassos, a longtime friend of mine from the industry. She's a veteran, nonprofit executive, and strategic advisor to Offscript Media for strategic relationships. We hope you like what we have to say, so please enjoy the show. So don't start a charity. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to start right there. Don't start a charity. Words of wisdom. Are they really words? Pearls of wisdom. Is it words or pearls? Either way. Either way. Either way. Pick whichever one you prefer today. You Sandy, can break wisdom down into many different That things. is true. Wisdom <laughs> is Packets, subjective. Gallons. Yes. Well, what? Sandy, you've worked for a nonprofit. I've worked for a nonprofit. Do you tell people? How many people said, well, I want to start a charity? None. No one ever said that? No. Or did you tell them not to? Well, you know, mixed advice. If they're right for the charity, why not start a charity? But you got to be in it for the right reasons. Right. The the foot, the half foot in the door doesn't work. No. You got to be all in, all out. I think running the nonprofit, uh, running Super Cancer, the, the, the predatory nature of industry coming to you to sort of pluck the apples out of the orchard for their own benefit was the best and worst problem to have. A, I felt it was a symbol of success that these companies saw opportunity, which, you know, we amassed X amount of people, were valuable to you, come to the orchard, pluck the apples, but at the same time, oh, we're not going to pay you to enter the orchard to pluck your apples. 
I remember back in the day, there were companies that were actually funding, well, create chapters. Why don't you guys have chapters? Right. Here's money, 10 chapters. But then the money gets cut off. Or I'm only going to give you this money if you have a chapter in Houston. And you produce a pink brochure, blue brochure, and this is what you got to say. Well, fortunately, you know, if you had maybe some sort of cooperative, you wouldn't have that problem. Hi, Jen. How are you? (laughs) Jen Haranja from Savvy Co-op. And yeah, like that's... What a great idea. Let's go over that again. So a co-op is a little bit different than a charity, which is its own tax designation, the 501c3 type organization. A co-op is its own legal entity, and it means that people become co-owners. Co-ops are for-profit businesses. They just then redistribute those profits back to those members. So it has a different business model that is attached to it. Right. So when they come into your orchard, they actually pay you and the apples get paid. This is the weirdest metaphor I think I've we're, ever we're had. We're going deep here, yes. <laughs> it's all about fruit. Hey, Today's episode is sponsored by fruit. Patients have been called a lot of things. Um, apple is not the worst one. No, no, so, apple's a good one. Apple is better than many I've heard. Yeah, so the whole point is that I always went back to these companies and said, sure, feel free. To, I'm just going to keep the metaphor, fuck it. Mm. Feel free to pillage the orchard, but here's how much it costs to get in. And then, oh, wait, but we have no money for that. Right. Do you feel that's changed how any of these, and I, I hate to like cast a wide net to these these startups and these health techs, that they need the patient to talk to, to get insights on how to use that information to make someone else and themselves lots of money. Have they realized that they need to allocate budget to get into the orchard? I'm not sure they've learned those lessons, Matt, honestly. I mean, you know, you still go back to these companies year over year and you're asking them to renew their funding. And, you know, oftentimes uh, some of the smaller groups are saying, hey, you know, we get rejected by these companies because they don't want to be a big part of our budget. So they sort of pigeonhole these small little groups and they say, hey, you know, we can't be more than 3% of your budget or 5% or 10% of the budget. So they exclude them from getting, um, from having the opportunity to secure larger funding amounts to help them grow. I think what's so interesting about that and hearing about that problem mm-hmm. that many of these smaller mom and pop charities may be experiencing because they don't have the bandwidth to be going and getting the big sponsorship. We at Savvy Cooperative, we work with those smaller organizations so that we can kind of be that buffer between the company and the charity, if you will. Right. So that, yeah, people can figure out how they want to direct their money and whatnot. We can kind of be this sort of Switzerland, if you will, third party. Is that a sign of the times, though, that they're somewhat coming around to this idea of we, again, I mentioned the, the, the patient advocate donut hole, which is the end user of industry is always the doctor because they have to prescribe the medications out there. But the industry needs the patients. And if we're not considered the end user, on the front end, how are we the, the the uptick on the back end and have no say? They need to consider the patient as the customer. Yes. So I think a lot of them are getting better. You know, many have patient experience officers. Um, you know, they're beginning to um, uh, include patient perspectives. Many have chief patient officers, and I, I, I like that trend. Is that a title? Do they do anything? It do is a budgets? title. It's pretty new. Right. We don't know yet. We have to see how effective those patient advocates are. And, you know, many, of course, patient advocates are are passionate about what they do. 
and they're bringing a new perspective into these companies. So I think is, you know, we have to wait and see. I think what we're seeing, since this is kind of the, the core business of what Savvy Cooperative does, we do see a shift in the industry. And I think it's taken about a decade for people to be throwing around these buzzwords about patient centricity. Oh. And so people have been talking about it now. And now we're starting to push them over into the the action category. It's no longer okay to just say you are patient-centered. You have to deliver. And right. so buzzwords. Buzzwords. Buzzwords galore. And I think what we're seeing is people are starting to see that they need to build in budgets for that. We actually did a white paper earlier last year that was looking at this specifically in the life science community and talking about how do they approach sort of being patient-centered. And it's challenging because the decision makers might not have the budgets, might not be the quote unquote patient advocacy team. So it's really hard to coordinate that. And every company, it kind of looks different at these larger companies. That's why we see these smaller companies, the digital health, the smaller ones that can be more nimble. Less lawyers. Well, less lawyers, but they just, they can, they can get things done a little bit quicker. And while they might not have the same budgets, they start to see more of the need for this sort of iterative design and sort of what's in the startup world known as like lean startup where you're going to build, test, et cetera. And so we're seeing more action happening from these teams. So I would say it's happening, but we need to have more buy-in for why it's so important. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, you've seen one company, you've seen one company. They don't always approach it. And I remember hmm. with the notion yeah. So each company really had its own um, understanding, interpretation of what patient centricity is and what it means to the industry, what it means to the patient group, what it means to healthcare. And I still think that there's a lot of disparity in defining patient centricity. But I agree with you with what you said with the cooperatives. I think when the smaller nonprofits, and, and I've done some of this work as well, sort of come together in a coalition, a cooperative, an alliance there are economies not only of scale, but economies of revenue potential. They have leverage that way. And I think that that is really moving the needle significantly. And I think it's so important to be able to then advocate for those, to continue the analogy, the apples. Yes. <laughs> so I win. <laughs> you won the metaphor round today. Because what needs to happen is we all should be in service to those individual patients. And when we can do this effectively, we can make sure that they are fairly compensated and not being taken advantage of, which has kind of been the model of healthcare so much. I know that it's set out to help those patients, but the economic model is oftentimes extractive of patients. So we need to be that sort of honest broker to make sure that those individuals are fairly valued. It's the arrogance of industry to presume that just because it is technically, ethically, morally in the interests of patients to know about options for them, you become a customer that they need to learn from. They should compensate you because you didn't ask to be that focus group member. <laughs> yeah, you didn't voluntarily become a patient. Right? No. I mean, it's just you wake up one I day, you're a patient. I can't wait to be, to be taken advantage of with my lupus. Exactly. Let's just say oh, no one ever. Let's be, let's be a patient one day. Uh, but, you know, you're, 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 you're absolutely correct. Um, patients, I think, I think healthcare is probably the only industry where patients as a consumer have no power in a way they don't they can't just pull out a wallet and pull out a credit card and say well here i'm going to purchase my health care 
and I'm going to choose which healthcare thing I'm going to receive. And I'm going to sort of force you to compete for my business. And that's very important because patients still don't carry that consumerism, the economics of their, their healthcare with them. Others make those choices for them. What well, that's been a recurring theme is yeah. where is the consumerism in healthcare? Because you can't pre-research a drug or a trial or a choice because you don't expect to be in that market. I think it comes back to to the complexity of this multi-stakeholder approach yes. that happens in healthcare. That's just the way that it is, that the person who decides and chooses something is different than the person who ends up paying for it. Right. It's different from the person who ends up using it. These are three different entities, usually between a doctor, a provider, an insurance company, or an employer, and then that lowly patient or healthcare consumer. So it's just a very different model than a traditional consumer industry. I, when we think about the question of- Oh, hi, Andrew. Oh, hello. <laughs> when we think about the question of the role of the nonprofit structure in organizing patients in the past to help them organize their relationship to the industry, do you think that the fact that it's primarily been nonprofit organizations doing that in the past, that has led to an assumption on the part of industry that patients don't want to be compensated for their ideas and for the role that they play in shaping the industry's understanding. I mean, to say that they don't want to be compensated, I think that is a, a foolish assumption. Um, I'm not sure they even think about it. I think that they're more concerned about whether or not, A, they have the capital to compensate them, and what are the optics, which I understand there are certain sectors of the industry that are highly regulated and that becomes a real concern that we all need to care about but if you're not doing anything wrong they need to open their eyes to the fact that this is a, a better business strategy for them to mm. engage these consumers patients whatever we want to call them um, in a more meaningful and equitable way so i think that it's sort of some willful ignorance on their part about whether or not patients want to be compensated the words consumerism even. I mean, that's seen as being an evolution of the way that we describe the role of patients. A lot of patients don't want to be considered consumers, right? especially when it's something that's like life-threatening or, you know, I didn't ask to be a consumer multiple sclerosis patient. Like there's no MS store to buy clothing in. It's, it's an evolution of, I would say, an idea that if you think about patients as just people who need to buy shit that they didn't want to buy before because again who pays for it maybe there's a groupon for your chemo <laughs> like like it's a because i remember when like patient became survivor and there was a lot of controversy even over that word because i think the nci or Livestrong came up with a new policy where in order for like billing codes to work and hospitalizations and reimbursements you had to be considered a cancer survivor from the day you were diagnosed. And back when I was diagnosed 25 million years ago, you didn't even use that word until you were like five years out. But the health economics around the semantic became a conversation out there. I, I, I don't believe that the nonprofit sector has been intentionally ignorant of the potential monetization opportunities when pharma bio come to them but when you're focused on mission 
and research and largely research, your community aren't considered commodities, they're donors. Well, I think one of the things that we see with our relationship with other health charities, et cetera, these patient groups, is that they just don't have the capacity always to do this. That's not why they exist. They are disease-ish specific groups that are working on behalf of their community to develop programming and education and policy. And that's so important. And mm -hmm. so that's where they come to us and say, look, we have these companies that are trying to work with our patient base, but we, we don't know how to deal with the legal structures of this. We don't you know, have people that can be running point on it. So that's one of the aspects I think is what is, like you say, what's the mission right. and how do they juggle that with these incoming requests? Right. So I, I, I don't know how many nonprofits are very marketing forward thinking and how they operate as a, as a business in a sense. And I can't speak that it's just me. I know others that have come around to understand that there is a monetary value to the community. They don't want to like sell out, but it becomes so opportunistic. I always felt that if you're not specifically committed to being a research focused nonprofit and you are in the almost the health, life, science, quality aspects of these patient communities, they're going to want to be the research. They're going to want to be invited and asked to have a seat at the table, but they need to be compensated for that. And I can't tell you how many times we've said no to companies that would not pay stupid cancer to get those patients at the table so we could cover the travel, we could give them a stipend. Of course, they couldn't because of regulatory and crazy lawyers with diarrhea with like the risk averseness of a frightened squirrel. I think that um, some of the smaller charities, and just to, to get back to the point of consumerism and compensating patient advocacy groups and, and patients, you're right. I mean, they're not doing it. They're not doing it well. Patients, just by virtue of being a patient, let's say a cancer patient, they're experiencing, I'm going to give you another buzzword, financial toxicity. Uh, yeah. So there's need. There's need for a patient. And yes, nobody wants to be a patient, but all of a sudden you're a patient. You have no tools. You have no say. You have no information. You have limited resources. How do you wake up the next day and go, all right, what do I have to do first? Um, you're going to turn to that local healthcare charity, whether it's a small one or a large one, and you're going to look for resources and help and support and opportunities for financial compensation, uh, opportunities to seek other assistance. And it, it's very, very important. And I agree to your point. I mean, the companies are not granting um, um, financial resources to advocacy groups to dole out to patients. I mean, that's not their their goal or their mission, but there has to be some type of indirect benefit to patients. Um, involve patients in their healthcare consumerism. Involve them in sharing their experiences so they can benefit the community and give them opportunities to be compensated, perhaps in designing a clinical trial, serving on an ad board, doing focus group work, you know, doing something concrete. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This idea of compensating patients for being involved in a situation that they didn't ask to be in, we found that there are tax implications under many circumstances of how much you can pay them because then you don't want to give them a 1099. And many of these patients may be facing financial toxicity and they can't show income. If they're on disability. If they're on disability. A lot of young adults we've worked with were on disability. They hadn't worked in several years. They, they can't show an income because it'll counterbalance their disability checks out there. And there are organizations that have found a, an odd loophole where they'll like, they'll pay your electric bill, they'll pay your car payments, and it's an adjacent way to compensate them. Have you seen yeah. that in your space, Sandy? Yes, I have. I mean, there are some good groups out there and there are not a lot of them, maybe less than a handful that will go directly and pay the mortgage or pay the car payment or renegotiate um, a debt. And that's incredible work. Um, there's a group and uh, I don't remember their name, but it's a group of lawyers and accountants that have gotten together. It's a voluntary organization and they do just that. Is that the New York Legal Assistance Group? No, no, it's not. Um, and and we can talk about resourcing perhaps in another program, what resources are out there for patients that might be interested in, in seeking these types of resources. But they, this stuff should not be taxed. This is ridiculous. That's a whole other conversation. That is a whole other conversation. <laughs> You're going to be taxing, oh, I'm going to give you $500 or $1,000 just to help you get food on the table if you're a single mother, and we're going to tax you for it. Meanwhile, you have cancer. Right. Jen, how do you handle the disability gap? Has that come up at all at Savvy Co-op? Yeah, it does come up. Um, and certainly, there are certain payment thresholds that become uh, concerned both for like the ten issuing 1099s, but also for those who are on disability. And we work with those individuals to make sure that there's a pathway forward for them to receive what they need to, but without being or threatening what they are getting through disability. So we work with them. Is being a member of Savvy Co-op, does that put you in a position where you need to have like a financial 
advisor guiding you on your equity stake? Does that, I mean, it might be a good problem to have. Yeah, I, that, that's the dream. That's the dream to have that kind of problem. At this point, no, that's not kind of where it's at. People, they there's two ways that people can earn through Savvy. That is with these opportunities, which we call them gigs. It could be the survey, focus group, user testing, interviews, et cetera. And they get paid for their time to do that. Um, I will also say that we now have really gotten more into the compensation conversation with some things that don't aren't really kind of a one-to-one -one hourly rate. It could be um, they're used as a, on, for a video on a website. That obviously has a lot more value than just... There's also a perpetuity there. Yeah, and that's going to brand something for another company. And so we've been able to say, look, this is the value that has. It's not an hourly rate sort of thing. And so that's been really exciting to get people compensated. In those cases, they're making you know a, quite a bit more money. And so we have to think about how can we make sure that everybody's accounted for there in terms of you know any disability issues, et cetera. What's so interesting about this is that the buzzwords used to describe the patient role that that I'm aware of anyway thus far don't quite capture what you're talking about here. These aren't consumers merely. They're not merely survivors. The phrase consumerism is helpful because it, it places the patient in a position of being a decision maker, somebody with expectations. But what you're talking about is almost, I don't know, like patient professionalism. Yeah, that gets to be a consulting, tricky term. Consulting, right? Patient consulting? Yeah, all of these things can be troubling depending on who the audience is, on if the some people say, well, we want somebody of that stature, of that influence. And then others say, well, we don't want the professional patients. This is what they do or whatever. And so I don't care what you call them, but sometimes you're looking for those kind of leaders in the community, but sometimes you're directly not looking for those people. And that's something we care greatly about at Savvy is to make sure we have more diverse voices. And this comes back to being a compensation issue. If you expect people to only do this for free, then you will only be able to reach a certain subset of the population, which means that you're only then innovating for a said subset. Because if you want somebody to participate in a focus group, but they need to take time off of work or get childcare or pay for their transportation, just out of the goodness of their heart, you're going to lose a large segment of our population. And that's why when- Well, the patient that doesn't need to be paid may be of slightly different privilege and Ab access. Absolutely. And you're cutting out like 80% of the potential market. I mean, honestly, you know our origin story, but Savvy started because myself and my co-founder Ronnie kept being asked to be these sort of patients that would weigh in. And that is a position of privilege that we were in that we could do that for free. And it just wasn't right that you just keep talking to the same people over and over again. So it really does come down to thinking about it as a diversity issue. And Matt, when you mentioned the patient that is a little bit more privileged, a little bit more successful, might not need to be compensated, it's just those patients that are compensated, the celebrity patient, the sports hero patient. I mean, these, and as they should, you know, as they should, like everybody else. But they're the ones that end up representing a vast number of patients. And their celebrity does help, obviously, to elevate awareness. But they're compensated. They're on payrolls. They're, they have stipends. And they're compensated very generously. I think the challenge with some of the celebrity spokespersons or the notable influencers, the paid influencers of industry, is that 
again, from my experience, and we, I've interviewed many of them, I've met many of them, is they're generally, pun intended, on script. And they can't say certain things, and they're bound by certain language, and everything they do is leveraged against the um, adverse events reporting. So they have to do these interviews, and they have to do these very obviously branded conversations out there that lose the authenticity for that. And I don't know a lot of highly influential, you know, notables, maybe not like patient leaders, but the, you know, the names that are out there that, you know, are associated with different disease markets out there. What impact do they actually have if they can't be authentic? I think that there's, there's pros and cons to using quote unquote celebrities, like real celebrities uh, for disease awareness. They reach people in a way that many of us can't. I think that that's great. It's great to drive awareness. But as you say, what what can they say and how effective is that? But I do think that there's sort of this untapped market there to get them to be more effective. Um, But in the same token, what we hear from the patient communities, when you see that commercial with a celebrity in it, do people actually relate to that individual? Because they have access to resources, unlike the rest of us. So of course you can go get the best care and pay for the most expensive treatments and all of that. So we hear from the community that sometimes there's positive aspects to it and sometimes they just don't relate. Right, some of the more compelling conversations I've had in my history were the doctors, the lawyers, the well-to-dos that actually did go bankrupt because of their, again, financial talk. I feel like there should be a jargon button on the show financial toxicity out there or doctors who had a kid that got sick and even they didn't know how to navigate the system and they live and breathe in the system look i still don't know how to navigate the system sometimes i congratulations thank you i've been you know a patient for 35 years and i have access to all the right people but when something comes up i feel helpless because i just there's no way to penetrate this system sometimes. Right. Yeah, and my my recent experience, Matt, as you know, um, as a caregiver, one day you're just living your life, and the next morning you're a caregiver, and you don't have any tools. You have no tools to take care of the person that you're providing care to. Basic stuff that you don't even think about. So it is challenging all around for sure. Well, I think the wonderful theme of this show is pay your fucking patience. Jen, you've done a phenomenal job, at least bringing that conversation, maybe taking the volume to nine, and then we have to collectively push it to 11. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of it, is the more we can actually come together to do this, that will actually drive the industry to follow along. Well, certainly a to-be-continued conversation here on the uh, podcast. Thanks for joining us. Andrew McDowell, Sandy Vastos, and of course, Jen Harnjeff, Savvy Co-op. Talk to you later, guys. Bye. Good luck. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. 
Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.